Father, thank you for, uh, for this time. Um, we thank you for the cross, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we, we come before you with, with needs, um, specifically wisdom. We, we need to know what to do in the days ahead. We need to know how to act, how to speak, how to honor you. Pray tonight would, um, would help toward that end. I pray that you would just, uh, that you would, you would speak, your word would be clear, and, uh, and I would just be a tool toward that end. Uh, so use me for, uh, for the good of this church, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I've entitled this the, the polarizing character of the gospel, and, and, and I hope that that's clear just by reading it. Uh, verses 18 to 25 in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This is Paul writing. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Well, in the fullness of time, Jesus Christ lived on this earth as the only man to live a life in complete obedience to the law of God. In obedience to the will of God, Jesus willingly handed himself over to evil men in order to be hung on a cross and die. And in doing so, Jesus bore the wrath of God in the place of sinners unjustly dying for us who deserve that shame and that death. Yet his death was not the end. Three days later, Jesus was raised from the dead with a physical body. The, the tomb is empty, as we love to say. Jesus is alive. Present tense, he is alive. His resurrection is proof that his sacrifice and his atonement 
for sin has been accepted. And what God says sinners must do in response to this good news is what? We've heard it a thousand times. Believe. Believe. Well, there are words that, uh, that some people use to describe this gospel. Ignorant. Stupid. Dumb. Foolish. This is what sinful, rebellious men say when they reject the grace of God. And the question that we could ask is why? This text, uh, 1 Corinthians 1, 18 to 25, it implies that the answer is pride. The world hears the gospel and rejects it because of self-loving pride that says, I don't need that. I'm, I'm just fine without it. I don't need the righteousness of Christ. I've got my own. And we could spend our time considering how the pride of man leads him to destruction. But tonight, I, I want us to consider the simple truth that this is the way that God intends it to be. And we shouldn't be ashamed of it. The gospel divides the human race exactly how God wants it to. And this glorifies him because the very message of the gospel itself destroys what the world brings to the table. The world cannot stand up to the power of God in in the salvation of souls through the death of Christ on a cross. This is the truth that, that Paul knew. And in 1 Corinthians 1, he shows how he planted the flag of his life and his ministry on that truth. So 1 Corinthians is a letter that, that Paul wrote to a church that he planted during his second missionary journey. And after coming to, to Corinth and planting a church, Paul moved on to continue his, his apostolic ministry, just like he, he did in, in other places. And at some point after he left, the, the church began to be divided by cliques that formed around various church leaders. In, in verse 12, there's some who say he was, they were Paul. I'm, I have Apollos, I have Cephas, even I have Christ. And hearing about this division, along with other questions the church had about its ministry, Paul wrote to confront them and to expose how they have removed from their focus the centrality of the cross. So at the beginning of this letter, Paul corrects the division in the church by reminding them of the centrality of the cross and the gospel that they believe and what that has to say about their petty cliques. This reminder stretches into chapters 3 and 4 where he confronts the Corinthians for their worldliness and how their actions oppose the cause and the call of the gospel. And in order to get to that confrontation, starting in chapter 3, Paul lays the groundwork of the gospel again by telling them that the gospel doesn't depend on human wisdom. In order for God to achieve his purposes, he doesn't depend on human wisdom. He begins his confrontation by reminding the Corinthian church of the dividing character of the gospel and its proclamation among believers and unbelievers in our text. 
And that's what I, I want us to, to gain this, this evening. I want this passage to remind us that the gospel divides, especially in this day. When we tell people about Jesus Christ and what he has done, we should expect one of two outcomes. We should expect God's grace to light up dark hearts. That they may see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We should expect that. In sharing the gospel, we should expect God to save sinners. We should also expect another outcome. That other sinners will reject his grace. They will remain under the veil that they have over their eyes. And they'll remain in their sin and their rebellion. And this passage helps us toward those expectations by noting two polarizing effects of the gospel. Two polarizing effects of the gospel. Number one, it divides man into the lost and the saved. Let's read verse 18. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So in this first polarizing effect... Paul divides everybody who has ever lived into two groups. They're divided over the meaning and the significance of the cross. Now, verse 18, it starts with the word for. And so when you come across this word, usually it's serving as an explanation to, to what's come before it. So in other words, Paul's building an argument. He's going somewhere. And Paul's well known, we, and we know this very well, that, uh, that he builds intricate arguments that cover chapters. And for what other reason than that does, does Pastor Rick take us through, okay, here's what chapter one is, here's what chapter two is, here's what chapter three is. Every week. It's because it's all linked. And it's words like four at the beginning of verse 18 that, that develop an argument. And in this case, Paul is giving the reason for his statement in, in verse 17. There, Paul condenses his philosophy of ministry and preaching into a few words. He says, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. So the mission of, of Paul's ministry was to preach the gospel. And the way he went about fulfilling his ministry was the plain proclamation of it. In, in other words, he didn't present the gospel in, an, in a way that, that others would have if, if they were made up the, of the philosophers of the day. He didn't try to win over his audience through his wisdom and his eloquence. Why did he simply proclaim the gospel rather than to, to butter it up? Through, through rhetoric. Because the cross of Christ would be emptied of its power if he did that. No longer would the power of God for salvation rest on the finished work of Christ. It would depend on human wisdom. On human ingenuity. On the, the ability of a man to adapt his message to win over his audience. So why does Paul say he preaches the gospel the way he does? Plainly, without cleverness. That's the question that verse 18 is answering. So why does Paul do it the way he does? 
For the reason that the word of the, cro- of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. In other words, Paul preaches the gospel with simplicity and faithfulness because one of the marks of the gospel when truly preached, when faithfully preached, is that it divides. That's part of its power. When sinners believe the gospel, they pass from death to life. And then when sinners reject the gospel, their rejection leads them to eternal condemnation. If Paul tried to win over people with with clever speech, he, he would have emptied the cross and robbed the gospel of its power. He would have laid it all on his shoulders if he did that. When the gospel, the the word of the cross is preached, it forces people to make a decision. The gospel demands an answer. And when people hear it, they fall into one of two categories that, that, that Paul gives here. First, those who are currently perishing. And second, those who are being saved. When the first group hears the gospel, they think such an idea is foolish. This group hears the gospel, this, this announcement that the single most important event in the history of the world is that on a little hill outside of Jerusalem, a man was hung on the cross and died. They hear that announcement. And they hear that through this man, God will judge the world. They hear that announcement and they say, that's foolishness, Paul. What, what does the death of a condemned criminal by means of no less than death on a cross have anything to do with me. The thought that that one man's death could atone for the sin of the many, for those who believe, it's utter foolishness to them. In In the first century, it was foolishness because of what the cross meant. The cross was the most despicable thing imaginable. Only the lowest of the low were put to death on it. So, from a human perspective, to say that someone as significant as the Christ was put to death on it, that was to, de- to defeat your own cause from the start. Important people don't die on crosses. We may not run into that so much today. We, we encounter a different form of what's perceived as the foolishness of the cross. Today, what's foolish is not so much that Jesus died on a cross. His death on a cross is actually a good example for us to follow. That's what we're told. What's foolish is that Jesus died on the cross as an atonement for sin. To believe in the, in the penal substitutionary death of Jesus on the cross is to be looked upon as believing folly. Why is that? Because we have no sin to be forgiven of. That's the explanation. Sure, we, we make mistakes. And, and we have our faults. But those, those aren't things that God would condemn us for. This is what we need to do. We need to work on being better people. Just 
just do the work to, to be a better person today than I was tomorrow. And in the end, God will reward my efforts. He'll, he'll understand my circumstances and, and, and just be glad that I acknowledged him when, when things got really tough. But to say that, that I'm a sinner and I desperately need to be forgiven of my sin and justified in God's sight, that's foolish. How can you believe that? If the substitutionary death of Jesus is not outright denied like that, then it's relativized in our postmodern culture. Someone says, I'm glad that this has affected your life in a, in a positive way, in a beneficial way. But I, I, I just don't agree with your assessment of its significance. And it's good that you believe that. I'm happy for you. It's just not what I believe. It's another way it's foolish. But whatever the form of unbelief, Paul says that's the response of someone who is perishing. When they say foolish to hearing the gospel, they reveal that they are among those who are perishing. In other words, they are those who are currently on the path that's heading for eternal condemnation. Now notice that Paul is not making an absolute statement on their eternal destiny here. He says they are those who are perishing, not those who have perished. Just because they are where they, where they are right now doesn't mean that this is, this is where they'll always be. And there's still hope that they will end up in the second group, which is those who are being saved. And notice that, that Paul personalizes this group. It's not just some abstract group of, of saved people that are somewhere out there. This group is made up of us who are being saved. So we hear the, the proclamation. Those who believe hear the proclamation of the gospel, just like the first group. But, but instead of, of thinking it foolish, they consider it the power of God. Hearing the news that Jesus Christ has been crucified, they respond like, like, like little babies. I believe. I believe that. That's the power of God. It's God's ability to forgive sinners at no expense to his holiness. What does Paul say in Romans? God is just and the justifier of those who live by faith. And the power of God is found in the central event of Jesus Christ crucified. Without what God has done in the cross of Christ, there is no hope. What reason does Paul give for making such a statement? How, how can Paul say that, that he does not preach with cleverness to impress the wise since they are those who are perishing? It's verse 19. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Philip read it earlier. Paul's ground for the division the gospel creates between the two groups is this quotation from Isaiah 29, 14. Now, you may have... Uh, 
heard it differently when Philip read it, straight from Isaiah 29. It's because that, that's straight from the, from the Hebrew. Here, Paul's quoting the, uh, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. So the foundational difference between the, the two groups is that one group was placing its trust in the wisdom of man, while, while the other group threw itself on the gospel as the power of God. That's what Paul's arguing here. And this is similar to the context of, of Isaiah 29, both before and after. Assyria was, uh, was on the verge of invading Judah. And feeling really the hopelessness of the situation. Everybody that, that, uh, that Assyria came against lost and lost in a bad way. Feeling that hopelessness, uh, Judah looked to the south and put their hope in, in another superpower in the area, Egypt. It was the quote-unquote wise thing to do. They, they needed help and they, and they had this superpower as a neighbor. So they put their trust in the protection that another kingdom offered. And in doing so, they totally disregarded the protection that God promised them. What they wanted was something tangible protect them, something they could touch, something they could see. And God condemns Judah for it. But at the last minute, Hezekiah throws himself at the feet of of Yahweh for protection, and and Yahweh delivers Jerusalem in a magnificent way. He delivers Jerusalem by sending the the angel of the Lord, the angel of Yahweh, Jesus uh, pre-incarnate, and kills 185,000 Assyrians in a single night. So Paul quotes Isaiah 29 to to show that the cross is God's ultimate victory over man's wisdom. There's precedent here. That's that's not what Isaiah 29 is specifically about. But that's how Paul's using it in in an analogical way, in an illustrative way. He's showing that, that the cross is God's ultimate victory over man's wisdom. And he does this by asking a series of questions in, in verse 20. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? The power of God in the cross of Christ reveals the utter bankruptcy of man's wisdom. The wise man can't be found. The, this, this philosopher who, who has all the right answers and all the deep questions, he can't be found. Neither can the scribe, this, this expert in the law. And the great debater that, that holds his audience in the palm of his hand, the one who speaks with cleverness of speech, he's speechless. Through the cross, God has made the wisdom of the world foolish. God has won. Now, I want you to know. I want you to notice how Paul proved his point. And I love this that that, that Aaron was doing the same thing this morning without apostolic authority, but he was he was doing the same thing. He proved it from Scripture. His authority for his assertion. 
in verse 18 was the Bible. And he makes no apology for it. God says it in his word, and that settles it. Something that that in, in seminary we call presuppositional apologetics. Now, you may be saying, that's good for Paul. He was an apostle. He can do that. But other people who I interact with, they won't see it that way. And the answer is, of course they won't. They, they can't. We need to understand that. We, they cannot see the truth. They don't know the truth when they hear it. So if, if they think the gospel is foolish, why would they think anything different about the rest of the Bible? Here's the point. We're, we're tempted to think, and even other Christians would, would tell us that we need to prove the validity of the Bible before we use it. Paul didn't think that. He said, for it is written. God's word that has been written in the past has profound implications for the present, for us. That's how Paul operated. So God's word stands over Paul and it stands over us as established and immovable and unshakable. It can't be changed, and it won't be thwarted. So what what does this have to do with, with, with verse 18? Proclaim the gospel. Proclaim the, the word of God without feeling the need to, to go somewhere else to prove it, to, to find some equal ground with somebody else uh, so, that, so, that you can, so that you can use it. Don't feel that way. Preach it. Tell it. Share it. If you try to go outside the Bible to prove it so that you can use it, you're relying on human wisdom to do that. You're going against what Paul says here. And according to the word of God, human wisdom has been destroyed and made foolish by God. You don't have to use it. And this brings us to the second polarizing effect of the gospel. It divides man, number two, it divides man over what is wise and foolish. Verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Beginning in in verse verse 21, Paul accelerates his his argument uh, concerning what God has accomplished in the cross. He he begins by summarizing the argument so far. So that's what this, since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. That's Paul's summary of verses 18 to 20. The world can't grasp the significance 
of the cross and instead regarded it as folly. That's the argument so far. So now in verse 21, Paul brings another four. So again, Paul is giving the reason for his last statement. Why can Paul imply that God has made foolish, really make explicit, that God has made foolish the wisdom of the world? Because God was well pleased to save those who believe the gospel through the foolishness of the gospel. In other words, God didn't use anything that the world would think was wise or beneficial to fulfill his desired end. Here's what the world would have done. They would have uh, compiled their best minds to set forth the path to its ultimate goal. And then collected its most attractive and most uh, compelling people to convince others of its validity. That's what the world would have done. We see that every day. But not God. God was well pleased to send heralds to announce his proclamation that what he requires from us, he's provided for us through his son, Jesus Christ. He didn't send the world's wisest or or preeminent experts in the field or world-renowned debaters to convince people. It brought pleasure to God to send faithful men to simply and accurately announce what he has said. God is well pleased to use the foolishness of the gospel and the foolish method of preaching to save those who believe. God's means of salvation through the gospel and God's method of announcing it are utter foolishness to the world. So in order to show the absolute vanity of human wisdom, he employs what they think is foolish to destroy their wisdom. How does he do it? Verses 22 and 23. For indeed, Jews ask for signs, and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, to Jews a stumbling block, and to Gentiles foolishness. So the world demands that that God meet them on its, its own terms, on their own terms. Yet the Lord of the universe refuses to budge. For Jews, it's signs. Over and over and over and over again, the Jews ask Jesus for signs. Show us a sign. Convince us of your authority that you are the Messiah. Did the same thing to Paul. That, that Jesus was the Messiah. They asked him for miracles. As proof. And, and Jesus did perform miracles. But he didn't do them at, upon request. He, he did them in obedience to the Father. Jews asked for signs. Greeks, on the other hand, they endlessly pursued wisdom. As one commentator says, they wanted proof by means of human reason. Through ideas they could set forth and discuss and debate. They were like those in, in Acts 17 who, who did nothing but, but search for and, and, and listen to something new. Paul came to them with, uh, preaching Jesus and the resurrection and they, and they thought they heard uh, strange gods because they thought resurrection was a god. And so they said, come Paul, tell us, tell us this, this new thing. We want to hear more of it. And he told them, and, and some believed, but most of, them, most of them said, that's foolish. Next guy. 
Jews ask for signs, and Greeks, Greeks search for wisdom. But what does God give them? We preach Christ crucified. God's answer to the demand for signs and the search for wisdom is the Son of God hanging on a cross. We preach Christ crucified. We announce to you that God has answered your rebellion against him by sending his son to die in your place. By the grace of God, through faith in Jesus Christ, your sin is forgiven if you believe. Therefore, repent of your sin, repent of your rebellion against God and be reconciled to him. That's Christ crucified. And what's that announcement to Jews? A stumbling block. A crucified Messiah, Paul? Don't you know that everyone who hangs on a tree is cursed? The law says that. They, they expected a victorious Messiah and scoffed at the thought of Messiah on the cross. What's this announcement to Gentiles? Foolishness. We've already seen it. Foolishness. And notice the switch to, to Gentiles from Greeks. It's not just a certain demographic of, of people that, that think that Christ crucified is foolish. It's the whole lot. It's everybody. They say, Paul, how are you going to accomplish greatness and achieve your goals if your leader was executed on the cross? It doesn't make any sense. A stumbling block. Foolishness. But, verse 24, to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. To those who have been chosen of God before the foundation of the world, both Jews and Greeks, Jesus Christ is not a stumbling block and he is not foolishness. What's the difference here? How is it that the two people can hear the same gospel and come away with completely opposite views on it? The difference is God. To those who are the called. A saving response to the gospel depends on the God who calls. For Paul, when you're called, you're saved. When Paul uses this word, he's talking about those who are saved. Romans 8, 29 and 30. You can, you can say it with me. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. And these whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called. He also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Salvation depends on the gracious call of God. And for these Jews and Greeks who are the called, Christ and him crucified is not a stumbling block, and it's not foolishness. Christ is the power of God, meaning he himself is the answer to the Jews' demand for signs. You want a sign? Look no further than Christ dying on a cross. Christ is the wisdom of God, meaning he himself is the answer to the Greek search for wisdom. You want wisdom? Look no further than God's wisdom in putting his own son 
putting his own son to death to purchase a people for himself. That's wisdom. So what's the conclusion of all this? Verse 25. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So what could be called the foolishness of God? So this is like quotes, okay? What, if there were such a thing as the foolishness of God or, or such a thing as the weakness of God, if that were possible, they're still wiser and it's still stronger than what man has to offer. That's Paul's point. In the cross, God has won the victory over man and his wisdom. According to the Bible, the foundation and center of your faith is the death of the Son of God on a cross, the most shameful way of ways to die. And at its core, fundamentally and foundationally, that news is divisive. There, there is no way around it. you will encounter opposition because of the gospel. If the simple gospel is preached and its implications are mined out, then people will be offended and people will think it's foolish. So tonight, what, what I want this passage to encourage us to do is to deny ourselves and proclaim the work of Christ on the cross faithfully with, without a hint of shame or apology. And this is important because we're entering a season in our country's history that's, that's unprecedented. It's increasingly becoming unpopular to be known as a Christian, let alone a Christian that actually believes what the Bible makes so clear. That's an odd thing to a lot of people. We're being marginalized. We're being forced to the outskirts of the culture. And in their eyes, you've heard it, we're bigots. Because we're faithful to what the Bible teaches, we are bigots. And because we are faithful to what the Bible teaches, we'll carry that label, won't we? We'll be called such things. All over the country, more churches and more believers will be ostracized because we have the audacity to say to the world's face, thus says the Lord. And that's a good thing, to be ostracized and to be marginalized for such a cause and for such an act. And although marginalization will come with costs that will be difficult to swallow, it will serve us well because... Because churches all over the country are going to be purified. Soon, along with, with many of our brothers and sisters, we're going to be looked upon with suspicion and we're going to be slandered. And with that, those who, who don't belong to the Lord, they're going to depart because they don't want to be seen that way. They don't want those things said about them. I pray that our church will faithfully bear the reproach of Christ, knowing full well that, that it will not be comfortable. But if that's the price, if that's the price we've got to pay, then may God's will be done. 
Whatever the cost is, let's resolve to be faithful to the one who bought us. Let's pay the price for faithfully standing upon the word of God. And that starts with faithfully proclaiming the gospel. First and foremost, being faithful to Jesus is to be able to say without flinching that the Son of God came to the earth in the flesh, living a perfectly righteous life, fulfilling the law of God, and died on a cross on behalf of sinners for their sin and was vindicated by God, having been raised on the third day. And with that, to say to sinners, to say to friends, to say to co-workers, to say to family, Unless you believe this gospel, you will be condemned by God to hell. Being faithful to God and his word means being willing to proclaim a gospel that divides, a gospel that's unpopular. Being faithful to God and his word means being willing and ready to be considered foolish. Are you ready for that? It's here. It always has been. It's just heightened now. Let's ask the Lord to help us to, to be faithful to his word in the face of, of this opposition. Father, we come to you with a, with a great need for steadfastness and for perseverance, and for self-denial. To bear the reproach of Christ faithfully when, when most of us have not seen that to a, to a high degree, to an intense degree. And as things get grow from bad to worse as your word says give us faithfulness we cannot do this on our own help us to be faithful to your word to stand upon it to proclaim it to share it and then to be to find rest in the fact and the truth that the results lie in your hands. Put the gospel on our lips so that it goes to the ears of those who hear. And would you save? Bring sinners to salvation. Use us as tools. Let's not rest or rely on on our own wisdom. Let's just speak what you say. Help us to do that. Let us in Jesus' name, amen.